Hello, my Bobolas. Welcome to a bonus episode of The Lee Show. It's nice to be here with all of you. Lots to talk about this week, so we're back with a little bonus episode. Yeah, I saw on Twitter this week that Jordan Peterson got himself ratioed. You know, so Jordan Peterson is this guy. He's a, a psychologist from Canada who has gone out of his way to take out, stake out kind of like right wing, uh, just controversial positions, right? He's a guy who tries to be controversial and say controversial stuff. And sometimes he's saying things that are sensible that other people are afraid to say. And sometimes he's just saying some bullshit. But he's one of those guys and he's he's made himself into a big media figure by just saying offensive stuff, which I think that's a not super interesting or thoughtful way to approach things. Sometimes I agree with this guy. But anyways, he um he he posted a picture this week. It was the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. And the woman on the cover of the swimsuit issue this year is named Yumi New. And she is heavy. She's got a beautiful face. And maybe she is a beautiful woman. I don't know. She's very curvy. I think she's pretty. But Jordan Peterson wrote, Sorry, not beautiful, and no amount of authoritarian tolerance is going to change that. I love that phrase, authoritarian tolerance, like you're being forced to be tolerant. Uh, you have to say it, I guess, the way he would say it with his accent. Sorry. I don't, I don't agree with him. I think she's, she's beautiful, but she's definitely heavy. And there was, a, a, understandably, a lot of reaction to this. And what he's saying is this woman is not beautiful. No matter how much the the authoritarian leftists tell you that a heavyset woman is beautiful, he's saying it's not beautiful. Now, what is the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? It's a weird anachronism. If I recall, it used to come out every year in February because there was this lull in professional sports in America, right? You had just had the the Super Bowl in the NFL, and you still had a, uh, another month and a half before baseball season started. You had a few more months be before the basketball and hockey playoffs. And so there was this lull. And so if you're Sports Illustrated, where you make a magazine about sports and you write articles about sports, there's this dead zone. So they filled it with this swimsuit issue every year. And it's sort of a weird thing that you just have this magazine of what it's supposed to be just hot chicks and bikinis and the idea was that men who subscribe to sports illustrated would what jerk off to this magazine that they would subscribe year-round just so that they would get the swimsuit issue i don't know what like what was the the thinking here was it i mean that it was that that that, that was the way they would get you to subscribe all year round was to get this magazine. Like the same way Victoria's Secret had those catalogs that were filled with beautiful women, but were sort of made for men and they were mailed because it would be made for, for men. I don't know. Was it that it was like hard to get pornography 
for a long time. You had to either buy it in paper form, which was embarrassing, or you had to subscribe to it. You had to hide it. But this, it's Sports Illustrated. You can leave it out in the open. Oh, it gets mailed to me. I didn't choose it. It just gets mailed to me. So I guess that was the idea. So they rounded up a bunch of models and put them in very skimpy swimsuits and, and took pictures of them in the sand and on the beach. And and I, I don't know. It I'm sure over time that standards of beauty have changed, right? That what we thought was attractive as a society for a while is not what most people find attractive anymore. In the 90s, there was the whole heroin chic look that I guess was was attractive. And, and women like Kate Moss, who were anorexic skinny looking, it's not my taste. I don't find that, that rail thin look to be particularly attractive. I'm not sure I'm, you know, indicative of the rest of the world. But I certainly don't think that that is the look that is considered desirable as a society right now. It seems like there's more of a preference for women who are curvier or with big hips or, I don't know, or, or, or women who are trans and then they get pregnant. I, who knows? Everybody's got their own tastes and their own preferences. It's weird that they still mail out this magazine full of bikini pictures to men who subscribe to a magazine about sports. It feels like a weirdly misogynistic thing, an anachronism. I kind of can't believe that they still mail this out just for men to, to tug to it. And are they trying to somehow make it seem more woke by including a bunch of heavier set women in it? Do, do the men who subscribe to this want that? Or are they trying to push this message that like fat women can be beautiful too and the men are supposed to what pretend that they like it? I I'm really curious if this was digital and you could track which pictures the men spend the most time on how many of them spend the most time on the fat women? I'd guess it's very few. But they're trying to make it seem more woke and so they put her on the cover. But I'd guess most men, when they're thumbing through this magazine, they're like, oh, I'm going to skip over that one. And we've talked a lot on this show about the concept of fat activism. You know, fat activism is this. Uh, let's do a quick refresher. So rewind to the 1960s. People were starting to get concerned about what made them obese. And there was some suspicion that it was eating a lot of carbs and stuffing your face with carbs. And so to counteract this, the sugar lobby and a handful of companies that make cereal, which is just a big box of carbs, they paid off some scientists at Harvard to go and publish research that said, nope, it's not sugar that's the enemy. It's eating fat. Fat is the enemy. They paid these guys $6,500 to publish an article that said this and then to go speak about it. And that was what birthed the food pyramid. Do you remember the food pyramid? It was that diagram that was on the side of, of packaged food that said, you know, you should have uh, uh, a certain number of, of servings of carbs. You should have six to 11 servings of bread and pasta every day. 
but meat, poultry, fish, beans, eggs, and nuts, you should have two to three servings. Was that a scam or what? And now, now we have an, an, an epidemic of obesity, one of the worst public health crises in history. It's killed way more people than COVID. It is catastrophic for our country. It has cost us hundreds of billions of dollars. But these, these companies, we know now that this shit is bad for you. Don't eat Frosted Flakes. It's not good for you. But the companies that make this stuff, they still want you to buy Lucky Charms. And so they know they can't convince you it's healthy anymore. We know it's not healthy. Instead, they've taken the opposite approach, which is a massive coordinated marketing campaign to tell you, it's okay. You can eat the Lucky Charms. You'll get fat, but it doesn't matter because fat people are beautiful. That's the new messaging. Doesn't matter if you get fat, it's beautiful. And they market that message by spending a fortune advertising in magazines so that those magazines will then run editorial content supporting this. That's why the cover of Cosmopolitan last year had a really fat woman on the cover with the headline that said, this is healthy, exclamation point. There's a picture of a fat woman trying to stretch. Health Magazine had a picture of a fat woman on the cover. Here's another one from Cosmopolitan. This is healthy. With a woman that, I don't know, she probably weighs 200 pounds. And it has an interview with 11 women on why wellness doesn't have to be one size fits all. So that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to convince you that it's just fine to be fat. That is dangerous. It's just as dangerous as the bullshit research published in the 1960s. And they have to convince not only women, but men too. So how do you reach the men? You do it with the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. You try to convince them that this is beautiful. This is what you want to see. It's kind of gaslighting, isn't it? And I get why the magazines do it. I mean, they're businesses. They, they need the advertising dollars. And these companies hire enough PR flax to get the messaging out that fat is beautiful. It's okay. Eat all of that pasta, baby. You'll be gorgeous. It's really pernicious messaging. It is manipulative. It is pernicious. And it's terrible. So there's this woman on the cover of the swimsuit issue. She's, she's really quite pretty. But she's, she's heavy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because looks are something where no matter how much equality of opportunity we want to create, beauty and charisma, they're distributed unevenly. Some people are beautiful, some are not. Even children recognize this. One of my favorite authors, one of my favorite modern authors is a guy named Carl Ove Nausgaard. He's Norwegian and he's brilliant. One of the great minds of our generation. And he wrote a six-volume semi-fictional memoir called My Struggle. And in book six, 
of my struggle, he had a quote that I'd like to read. It's a bit long, but I'd like to read this quote because I think it's really an important point. He said, Charisma is one of the two great transcendental forces in the social world. Beauty is the other. They are forces seldom talked about, since both issue from the individual. Neither may be learned or acquired. And in a democracy where everyone is meant to be considered equal, and where all relationships are meant to be just, such properties cannot be accorded value, though all of us are aware of them and of how much they mean. Moreover, we attach value in our human sphere to that which is made, produced, or formulated, not to what is merely there to begin with. In other words, what is made, produced, or formulated is important, and what is merely there to begin with is not. In a university lecture hall, male attention is centered not on the woman with the most compelling arguments, she who speaks engagingly and with insight about Adorno or de Beauvoir, but on the woman deemed to be the most beautiful. And so it is in every space in which men and women are gathered, on every street and square, in every restaurant and cafe, on every beach and in every apartment, in every ferry queue and train compartment. Beauty eclipses everything, bedims all else. It is what we see first and what we consciously or unconsciously seek. Yet this phenomenon is shrouded in silence inasmuch as we refrain from acknowledging it as a factor in our social lives, driving it out instead by our social mechanisms of expulsion, calling it stupid, immature, or unsophisticated, perhaps even primitive, at the same time as we allow it to flourish in the commercial domain, where it quietly surrounds us whichever way we turn. Beautiful people everywhere. Beautiful people on TV. Beautiful people in magazines. Beautiful people in films. Beautiful people in the theater, in pop music, in advertising. Indeed, our entire public space is packed with beautiful faces and beautiful bodies. Yet at the same time, we consider beauty to be superficial, unconveying of the authentic, which is the inner being. Beauty belongs to the body and the face, which are mask-like outer expressions of the eye and its immutable, inevitable nature. The fact of it being given rather than chosen is what disqualifies it, since after Nazism we can no longer attach value to what is innately human. The Nazis' division of the human into categories of the innate being what eventually led them into the final catastrophe, which is to say, we attach value to it, but do so in silence. You know, it's a, a remarkable quote. There's so much to unpack there. It's certainly not the woke thing to say. But it's important to remember that no matter how much we try to create a, an equal society, we can't control the fact that some people are just born more attractive than others. Whether it's genes or, 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 or something else, some people get it. Charisma, too. I'm fascinated by the concept of charisma because I don't think that you can teach it. Maybe I'm wrong, right? You can learn French. You can learn trigonometry. But can you learn charisma? And if so, how? I would really love to understand that. Beauty, I guess you can dress it up or down, take care of yourself. But I think a lot of it is innate. And that's sort of unfair, but it is what it is. Life's unfair, I guess. Anyways, Jordan Peterson thinks that 
beauty is uh is only in his definition of beauty and he got ratioed for it or close to it i i mean he had uh let's see he had 64,000 likes on his post and 24,000 comments i guess that's not really getting ratioed right getting ratioed is when the number of comments is greater than the number of likes but lots of people have something to say about this. One guy replied with this hideous picture of Jordan Peterson with the exact same caption that Jordan Peterson wrote. I don't know how many years this swimsuit issue could have left. I, I, I just, I mean, who the fuck is still sitting there waiting for this to come so that they can, what, masturbate to it for a year? Hide it in the nightstand? I mean, just what, what is the use case for this right now? That someone is just sitting there waiting for the postman to deliver the magazine with the heavy set woman on the cover so they can rub one out? Is that the idea here? Sports news is, by definition, like a, a real time thing. You want the scores, you want the news, the analysis. There is a huge market for that, but it's all on the internet. There's the athletic or, or bar stool, there's a whole bunch of sites that do this stuff. And Sports Illustrated. It's a, a great legacy brand, I guess, but could you imagine waiting for this on paper anywhere? Even just put a swimsuit magazine aside. Just the sports news. There, there are only two publications that I still read on paper, The Economist and uh, The New York Review of Books. I've been reading The Economist on paper for 25 years. I love doing it. New York Review of Books as well, although I need to renew that one. But everything else I read digitally. It's just easier. So who's, who's still getting their semi-pornographic material on paper? It's just weird. So I'm not a, a big fan of this uh, Jordan Peterson guy. I think he's, he's quite overrated. But if you are a big fan of Jordan Peterson or of the swimsuit issue, let me know. Let, let's talk about it. And I want to know how long you keep the swimsuit issue for each year. One of the big stories that's been making the rounds over the past week, and I've had a bunch of listeners who pinged me about this, uh, is about monkeypox. And people seem very alarmed. Uh, so I've done some digging into this. And my high-level summary is, I'm not very worried about monkeypox. I don't think this is going to be a big deal. It seems that it is largely spread through unprotected uh, anal sex encounters, although I'm not sure why that has anything to do with it. Although it seems that almost all of the spread so far has been in, um, so let's see, all but one of 150 confirmed or suspected monkeypox cases compiled by Global.Health are young or middle-aged men, most are gay or bi, diagnosed at STD clinics or reportedly attended gay venues such as saunas or events such as fetish festivals. So it's always tricky to say something like that because, you know, one might interpret it and say, well, this is like what they said about AIDS, that only gay people can get it. And that's not what I'm saying. It does seem to be spreading primarily amongst uh, the gay community. 
and it is not spreading that much. I don't think it's homophobic to say it's spreading primarily amongst the gay community. That could change in the future, but that seems to be where it is spreading right now. Uh, I'm not terribly concerned about this. This disease has existed in humans for about 60 or 70 years and has never spread in a very large way, right? If you think about COVID, part of what made COVID so different was it was novel. It was a new disease. And so we had to figure out how to treat it and how does it work and and what does this mean? Monkeypox is not a novel disease. And so it, let's see it's it's uh it was first discovered in 1958 first human infection in 1970. So if it hasn't if it's existed for 50 or 60 years and it hasn't spread very fast in humans there's no reason to think it will do that now unless it has mutated and I suppose that of course is possible. It doesn't seem that that is the case because the initial mapping of the genome, the sequencing of the genome indicates that it has not changed. It's moved geography, but it hasn't changed very much as a virus. And again, I'm I'm like getting a little out of my depth here. I'm 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 not one of these virologists, but you know what we saw with COVID was the supposed experts, the virologists, they didn't know jack shit. The first cases of monkeypox were detected in in London in early May, a guy who had traveled from Nigeria. Then there was some more outbreak in Europe. There's a handful of cases in the U.S. Uh, it is sp- spreading par- primarily, as I mentioned, um, amongst men who have sex with men. I don't know why. I don't know what the mechanism for that is. It seems like it's just very prolonged contact. I don't know why... Somebody said it has to do with anal sex. I, I don't, I'm not sure what anal sex would have to do with it because it doesn't seem that it is transmitted through body fluids uh, like semen, for example. But I, I can't tell. Um, but I'm not worried about this. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it, it immediately seemed like this was the new current thing, right? People are bored of Ukraine. So this is the new current thing that they're going to talk about and have an opinion about. And uh, maybe I'm falling into that trap and doing exactly that. But I kind of got the sense that there was an expectation that uh, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, the sort of hucksters in this healthcare industry, and we're going to be like, look, don't worry, we got another vaccine. Don't worry, we got to lock you down. I don't think that's happening. Uh, I just don't think this is a very big deal. So uh, I'm not I'm not too concerned about it. Um But we've seen over and over how the FDA fails us. And we've talked about that. We've talked about it with respect to infant formula just this past week. We've talked about it with respect to Alzheimer's medication and the FDA's approval of Aduhelm, which has proved to be a complete commercial bust because it's so ineffective. We've talked about it with respect to COVID. Uh, Alex Tabarrok did a, um, a a good, he referenced a piece uh, in a podcast with Brink Lindsay of the Wisconsin Center about the FDA's history of banning home tests. And I'm going to summarize and paraphrase a bit here. But, you know, if you think about the delays 
that we had in getting rapid tests approved for COVID and getting them deployed, even though they were ubiquitous in Europe and Asia, what what happened there? And Alex, that was that was a question from Brink Lindsay, and Alex said, the FDA has a long history of hating people testing themselves. They were opposed to pregnancy tests. They said that only a doctor could do pregnancy tests because women could become hysterical if they were pregnant, if they weren't pregnant, that there was a safety issue here. And the safety issue wasn't whether the test was unsafe or could harm you. The safety issue was that if you take this test, it could put you into a, a, a place where you are unsafe. So they've really expanded the meaning of this vague term safety. And then we had the same thing with AIDS testing, he points out. So we delayed at-home AIDS tests for 25 years because the FDA again said they're dangerous. And why were they dangerous? They said that they were dangerous because uh, they didn't know what people would do with this knowledge about their bodies. But of course, now you can get these at-home HIV tests and you know nothing's changed. The world still continues. Same with at-home DNA tests. Which, by the way, we should talk about those for a second, because I think that that is a total fucking scam and you should not do one of these at-home DNA tests. I think that's a terrible idea to uh, voluntarily log your DNA into a massive database is a, a horrible idea. Don't do that. If you have not done it, don't do it and make sure no one in your family does it. It's a terrible fucking idea. So, so coming back from those tests... The FDA has a long history of incompetence. It is an agency that has screwed up time and again. It's time to reform the FDA. It's time to maybe abolish them or dramatically restructure this agency. The government's default setting in all cases is to try to take power, keep power, no matter whether it is a good use of it. And it has become pervasive in this health infrastructure. When I was uh, when I was a kid, I went to Hebrew school for like seven years, and for a couple of years, my Hebrew school teacher was Mrs. Finkel. She was um, she was this old woman with big cankles. Not a bad teacher. She she knew a lot of what she was talking about, but uh, she was a very um, very intense type of uh, Hebrew school teacher. And I used to get very bored in class. I would sit there picking my nose, which is frankly what I do now. I sit there picking my nose. And Mrs. Finkel would notice it. She would kind of catch my eye and she'd go, she'd interrupt class and she'd go, dearie, do you need a tissue? And then of course, everyone in the class would turn and look at me and I'd be sitting there with my finger plugged up my nose. Very traumatic experience. I went to Hebrew school three times a week for like seven years. Um, wasn't terribly effective. Like I, I learned how to decipher Hebrew letters. I can read the letters, the words on a page. I have no idea what they mean, though. I have no vocabulary. Uh, I'm not sure it was a great use of time, but uh, I, maybe I wasn't a great student. I don't know. I, I wasn't the best behaved kid in school. There was one, I wasn't the worst behaved kid in Hebrew school either. 
I remember one um one one year, I think I was in like fifth or sixth grade, there was another boy in my class. He was the worst behaved kid. Uh and and one day in class our teacher was pregnant and he sort of pulled me and a few other kids aside and he goes, I heard the baby comes from rape. Which all of us were like, Oh my god, Mrs. So and so, you're never gonna believe what this boy said. He got kicked out of Hebrew school. Um I never got kicked out of Hebrew school. He got kicked out of Hebrew school. So that we know where the 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 threshold was. We know where the bar was for getting kicked out of Hebrew school. Uh, you know, and and what's acceptable and what isn't. It was a weird time for me that age. I mean, it's a weird time for everyone, I guess. I had a huge overbite. My teeth were so fucking crooked. And I went to, my parents took me to uh, a couple of orthodontists when I was like, I don't know, nine years old. And they said, yeah, we're going to have to pull. He's got too many teeth. It's too crowded. We're going to have to pull eight teeth. And my parents didn't want to do that. So then they found this other orthodontist, this guy, Dr. Kaplan. And Dr. Kaplan said, I won't have to pull any teeth. And by the way, I, I developed my own proprietary type of braces where you don't have to put brackets on the teeth and it's just as effective. And so we're going to do my thing uh, and and we won't have to pull teeth. And I went to him for over two years, probably two and a half years. And there was no progress. Nothing happened. Nothing improved. My teeth didn't get straighter. My overbite wasn't corrected at all. One time I went to him it was like the middle of winter and my lips were really chapped and he treated it like it was a medical emergency. And he kept smearing Vaseline all over my lips and, and talking about how severe that they, how severely they were chapped. And then after like two and a half years, my parents went to him and they said, you know, we've been paying you all this money and nothing has happened. There's no progress, no improvement we want our money back and we're going to go find a different orthodontist, maybe one who does more traditional types of braces or something. And he flipped out. He threatened to call child protective services on my parents because he said that they were abusing me because my lips were so chapped, which is the most outrageous thing. They got into a whole argument about it. Eventually he ended up refunding like half their money and, then I went to see uh, Dr. Lemchin, who was the orthodontist that all of my other friends were going to see. And, uh, you know, he, of course, pulled some teeth. I ultimately pulled eight teeth, gave me regular braces with the brackets. I had them for another like four or five years after that. I, I didn't do a great job with compliance. I didn't wear the rubber bands. I didn't wear my retainer. And so my teeth still suck. They're crooked. They're horrible. I've chipped a bunch of teeth. They're disgusting looking. I did, I did tooth whitening once. I don't know if I ever talked about that on the show. I did tooth whitening once. I went, uh, I, I went with with a friend, and and we did tooth whitening at Bright Smile about fifteen years ago. And the the premise of how they do tooth whitening is you lie in the seat, and then they um, there's like a thing that shines this UV lamp on your teeth for an hour, which burns off the top layer of your teeth. And then what's underneath that is whiter and brighter because you've just burned off the stained top layer of your teeth. It was horrible. I do not recommend tooth whitening. 
anyone. It is so fucking painful. Do you know what it feels like to have have a layer of your teeth burned off? Don't don't do that. And then they tell you you can only eat white food after that. So um we were hungry, but our teeth hurt. And I'm trying to figure out like what is white food. We ended up going to this fancy sushi place, and I told them this whole story about how we were um we believed in in you know sort of white supremacy and I made up this whole long saga about how uh dark colored food is impure and it's uh a threat to our racial purity i mean i I made up all kinds of bullshit, and so I told them that we could only eat white fish with white rice, and so we um we were at this fancy restaurant called 15 East eating all the kinds of white fish sushi on white rice. Not even any wasabi, no soy sauce, nothing was allowed. Uh, it was it was a terrible experience. Don't do that. We did that on the same day that I had a colonic. I think I talked about the colonic once on this show where it was like this old Bulgarian lady and she sticks a, a tube in your ass. You like lie on your side. She sticks a tube in your ass and then like blast some water into you and then turns on the suction and sucks the water out and each time the water goes a little further in and then more gets sucked out and she kept asking me these questions like do you eat a lot of fish and i'd be like uh yes and she'd go i could tell but no matter what i said she'd say i could tell you know she'd be like do you drink a lot of alcohol do you drink a lot of alcohol no none at all i could tell I mean, I should have tested her. I should have just lied and see what she said. I could tell. It was all bullshit. Anyways, I don't recommend it. I didn't think there was any benefit to doing a colonic. I didn't get skinnier. I didn't get more attractive. My skin did not improve at all. I guess it would make sense if you were like a runway model and you were trying to suck out every last bit of material from inside your body. But I don't think it does anything that would not happen on its own within uh you know 24 hours so seemed like a a real a real waste of time and uh and money the baby formula thing uh i'm not sure it's really getting better at all uh maybe it is um it, it's amazing to me you know they w- we we have this massive shortage of baby formula it's created by government incompetence and then biden decides they're going to spend a huge amount of taxpayer money to fly in formula from Europe. They're going to buy formula from Europe. They're going to clear out the regulatory barriers to European formula, at least temporarily. And then um, they they post on Twitter that they the first 70,000 tons of formula have arrived in the US. It is not 70,000 tons. 70,000 tons of formula is an insane amount and that is definitely not how much they have airlifted to the U.S. Uh, it seems like it was actually like 40 tons. So um, definitely fire whichever intern is doing your social media. Uh, they 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 brought in a bunch of formula. I don't know how long it's going to take to distribute it. Um, it. It's incredible. I mean, it takes a really special kind of government to screw something up through regulation, then screw something up through their um, mismanagement of the crisis. And then to spend a fortune on trying to fix it and to uh, uh, tout themselves like heroes for, for trying to fix the problem that they made. It's, um, it's just shocking. Uh, hopefully this formula gets into the hands of people who need it. it it's, uh, a, 
a pretty big crisis and it's awful as we talked about last week. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we're worried about this and, and hope that, um, at, that this gets into the hands of people who need it. Um, you know, otherwise, what, what are we going to feed the babies? What do we give them if they can't eat formula? Give them Ortolan. Do you know about Ortolan? Ortolan is, it's this bird from France that is very rare and endangered. It's this tiny little bird. And it's supposed to be delicious. And the way they eat it in France, it's illegal to eat it, by the way. It's illegal to capture them and eat it. But the way it's prepared is that you take the bird and you dunk it alive into uh, cognac or armagnac. And you drown the bird. It's tiny. It's a really small thing. You can hold it in your hand and you drown it in the liquor. And then you eat the entire bird. You you put a a black shroud over your head, which some say is to hide yourself from God because you're eating this delicate little thing. Others say it's to capture the aroma of the bird uh, when you eat it. So you drown it. And then I don't know if you cook it or not, but then you eat the entire thing in one bite. Like you put the entire bird in your mouth and for like 20 or 30 minutes, you chew it, bones crunching and everything in your mouth, and, uh, and you eat the entire, the entire bird. So I guess that's what we're going to do. We're going to feed the babies Ortolan if, uh, if we don't get any formula for them. That's it for now. Thanks for uh, tuning into this bonus episode, and uh, we'll be back with more soon. Remember, you can find us on Substack, leebrestler.substack.com. And, uh, you know, check us out there on Twitter, on Instagram. And uh, thanks very much for joining us.